Indeed. Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Um, This is the hour where we talk about science and science-related topics. And tonight, um, I do want to start off with uh, my normal intro, as you might have heard a minute ago. Uh, You can find me on Facebook throughout the week, posting at Evidence-Based Radio. Um, I try and post things there that aren't going to make it onto the show and also are more visual. And uh, as I always like to note, the occasional just ridiculously cute animal because everybody should have some ridiculously cute animal pictures or videos in their life these days because there is a lot out there that really is not great. Um, And, you know, cute animals make everything better at least for a moment. And with that, I obviously do want to start out tonight talking about something uh, that has happened recently that is pretty big, uh, which is, of course, Hurricane Harvey. Now, I'm going to focus on Hurricane Harvey, um, but I do want to acknowledge that there is also there have also been incredibly uh, large and devastating uh, monsoon floodings in India and in Bangladesh, uh, Mumbai, which is a huge city packed with people, packed with a lot of very, very poor people living in what are basically shanty towns, is just devastated. And so even though obviously we want to help the people here in America, if you can also try and give a little extra to help our other human friends across the uh, globe, that would be great. Um, And there's plenty of ways that you can do that. And there's all sorts of uh, charities out there. Um, So yeah, but first off, I do actually want to talk a little bit about Hurricane Harvey. Uh, We'll switch gears and try and make it a little bit more fun after we talk about this. Um, And then I want to finish with something else that I didn't get to talk about last week. But in the middle, we are going to sort of brighten things up a tiny bit uh, and talk about some back to school stuff. And um, yeah, so but let's first talk about Hurricane Harvey. And so one of the things I wanted to address is the idea of whether or not uh, what happened in uh, Texas was directly linked to climate change because I mean that's one of the big topics that is out there right now and so it turns out that how much climate change had to do with Hurricane Harvey is actually a pretty complicated answer um, or a, a complicated question I should say and so what we know is that it didn't cause Harvey but scientists do believe that it makes such large intense hurricanes more likely. The latest draft of the U.S. Global Change Research Program's Climate Science Special Report suggests that human activities have, quote, contributed to the observed increase in hurricane activity in the North Atlantic Ocean since the 1970s. Now, this is the same conclusion to which the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's 2013 assessment report, uh, which stated that scientists are basically 99% certain of an, quote, increase in the frequency and intensity of the strongest 
tropical cyclones since the 1970s in the North Atlantic. And so there are several factors involved in this, including the fact that a warmer globe means more moisture in the atmosphere. And of course, more moisture in the atmosphere leads to more rain, which leads to more intense storms. And so Michael Mann, a professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, and whose name you probably have heard before in connection to climate change, um, and in connection to uh, climate change denialists having tried to basically slander him in every way, shape, and form that they could, and discredit his work in order to continue to pretend that climate that anthropogenic climate change isn't a thing. But luckily, he has prevailed and he continues to research climate change and to talk about climate change. And so he points to at least three factors that likely affected Harvey. Higher sea levels, warmer ocean waters, and weak prevailing winds. And so he published an article in The Guardian on uh, Thursday And so what he said was that higher sea levels mean higher storm surges, which leads to more coastal flooding, warmer waters, as I've already mentioned, um, and warmer temperatures, I should say, lead to more moisture in the atmosphere, which, quote, creates the potential for much greater rainfalls and greater flooding. Uh, Man explains, the combination of coastal flooding and heavy rainfall is responsible for the devastating flooding that Houston is experiencing. And the last factor, though less certain than the others, is the idea that there were weak prevailing winds. And so basically, if there are weak prevailing winds that aren't pushing the storm, the storm ends up stalling out over an area. And so he notes that weak prevailing winds are caused by a greatly expanded subtropical high pressure system currently over much of the U.S., which is predicted in model simulations of human-caused climate change. And so man pretty much uh, very uh, succinctly is telling us that while Harvey wasn't caused by climate change, it certainly was affected by climate change. And of course, that this is a trend that we can continue, expect to continue. Um, We've already seen this happen with, for instance, the devastation in Hurricane Sandy. And so um, the storm surges that were created, especially the ones that kind of flooded into uh, New York and um, really just caused such amazing devastation were definitely um, caused by increased sea levels, increased storm surges, and so you get water further inland than you would otherwise. And so a 2015 paper in Nature Climate Change by Trenberth et al. notes that, although perhaps only one-half to one-third of the sea surface temperature increase can be blamed on global warming from human activities, it is readily apparent that the storm surge and associated damage was considerably influenced by climate change. It is quite possible that the subways and tunnels in and around New York City might not have been flooded without the warming-induced increases in sea level and in storm intensity and size. 
putting a potential price tag of human climate change on this storm in the tens of billions of dollars. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit now. We've talked about the science behind whether or not Harvey and climate change have anything to do with each other. And so while it's complicated and there are definitely some things that scientists point to, um, other things obviously not so um, easy. You can't just say climate change caused Harvey. You can say there's more moisture in the air, higher storm surges, that sort of thing, um, and potentially this issue of wind. But um, another perspective that I read and that I really um, felt was important to talk about was not so much the hard science of this all, but more the uh, underlying problems that Harvey has shown us. And so um, there was a great article by Ian Kelman. Uh, he wrote a rather scathing piece in The Independent. Um, and basically what he says, and I agree with this very much so, is that the reason Harvey was such a devastation is due to the failures of inst of infrastructure, oversight, lack of will, and politicians who are more interested in profit than in people and their safety. Um, and so he points to the fact that many of the lessons that should have been learned after Katrina were not. Um, people were allowed to continue to build in the floodplain. So a lot of people, um, Houston has this big part of it that is in a floodplain. And a floodplain means that when there is flooding, that part of the area will flood, even if you don't have historic and really devastating, intense um, climate, sorry, um, storms. Just in general, that's the kind of place that actually uh, gets flooded. But of course, people were allowed to build there because there are really almost no real building codes. Um, I was even reading somewhere um, while I was looking at things this week um, that apparently there are almost no fire safety regulations in Texas. I mean, it just seems like there is no oversight whatsoever. And so people were allowed to continue to build in the floodplains. They, uh, as in we saw in places like Louisiana, people continue to ignore the systematic poverty and racism that tends to keep poor people in the most vulnerable areas of these cities. And so uh, this is the kind of thing that is also largely to blame for the problems that Harvey has caused. For instance, climate change does not cause uh, us to create cities with almost no green spaces so that all of that water has nowhere to be absorbed. It all just runs off into, um, it all either runs off into other places that are also paved or it just continues to rise because there's nowhere for it to go. Now, we must also remember, though, that sometimes nature's fury is just something that we can't avoid. For instance, one of the worst storms in Texas happened in 1900 when Galveston was decimated by a hurricane that killed more than 6,000 people. That's three times the amount of people killed during Katrina. 
And if you think about it, in 1900, there were a lot less people in Texas um, altogether. Um, and so that was a really incredibly devastating uh, storm and obviously was not affected or caused by global warming. And so while many lessons have been learned from previous storms, the measures suggested have not been fully implemented, especially in Texas. And of course, one of the other things that we have to be worried about is that a lot of these life-saving agencies that we're seeing, FEMA um, and things like that, are facing huge budget cuts. And, you know, it's just very upsetting. Um, there, I'm just, I know that there's going to be a huge problem uh, coming up about people trying to get claims against their flood insurance. Most people don't have flood insurance. And, um, you know, there's a whole problem in this country with just not actually supporting people in a way that is sustainable. And so in no way, shape or form, though, do I want to suggest that anyone, anyone in Texas deserved anything that happened to them for any reason. It doesn't matter who you voted for. It doesn't matter who, what you do, um, who you are. You don't deserve to have your life turned upside down by a natural disaster. Nobody does. And that is completely and utterly a fact. Um, and I also think that there are larger issues here. Our entire system of governing and our entire just community has been systematically attacked by those who profit off of the poor, who make money from disasters, and who use such smoke, such events as smoke screens for their more egregious acts. And so, you know, for instance, while Houston is still reeling from what has happened to them, the Republican president has already pivoted to his tax cuts, um, which will, of course, overwhelmingly favor the ruling class. And I just read today um, reports coming out that the Texas Secretary of State, Rolando Pablos, has reportedly turned down an offer of aid from the Canadian province of Quebec. And so the Minister of International Relations from Quebec, Christine Saint-Pierre, has stated that she called Pablos to express the condolences of the people of her province and to offer aid in the form of equipment, manpower, and emergency supplies. Apparently, he turned her down and instead asked for prayers from the people of Quebec. And so, yeah, um, the shocking callousness of such a statement is mind-blowing. If prayers could have helped people, they should have helped them avoid disasters in the first place. Prayers will not feed, shelter, or clothe people. Prayers won't return electricity to their homes. So while climate change may not have caused Harvey, it does reveal some of our country's most dangerous weaknesses and the hubris of some of our so-called leaders. Okay, <laughs> um, I'm going to get off my soapbox again uh, for a minute and let us pivot now um, and talk about other things. So um, I wanted to do kind of a large pivot to obviously back to school things. 
Um, and so the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, what is the current si- what the current science says about whether students learn better from real books or from tablets and computers and things like that. Because it's something that I think is really interesting and it's important because a lot of people are turning to ebooks and to having things online. And while that's great for access, um, it's great because often those electronic uh, forms are cheaper than real books. But as far as I can tell, a lot of the science still says that reading a an actual book is better for you. And so we need to figure out how to uh, train people to be able to use these resources in a way that they get as much information out of them as getting as reading from a real book. So Again, unfortunately, the reality is that currently humans are still more adapted to reading in print than they are on a tablet or computer. And so psychologist uh, Patricia Alexander, a literary scholar at the University of Maryland, published a review of recent research on the topic. Now, she was actually surprised by the lack of thorough research on the question of 178 potentially relevant studies published since 1992, only 36 actually compared reading between digital screens and printed material and measured learning outcomes in a way that was rigorous. Most other studies looked at more uh, at more uh, measured uh, micro measure measurements such as uh, the way that eyes move or the relative merits of different kinds of screens, things like that. And so Alexander's paper, published in the Review of Educational Research and co-authored by doctoral student Laura Singer, did find one fairly consistent finding, which is that if reading a lengthy work, more than 500 words, reading a print version is better than a digital version. And so these findings actually held across all years of education, so all the way from grade school to college. And so there there are probably many reasons for this, um, for why reading the quote-unquote old-fashioned way uh, might be better for your ability to retain information. And so one of the things they suggest is that the actual act of reading on a screen, scrolling, dealing with glare, possibly dealing with flickering can cause fatigue that lessens concentration. And you might also be someone like me, for instance, who is lured away by stray thoughts to check something on the internet, which then leads to checking one's email, to checking one's social media, and then only much later coming back to the original text, maybe not remembering precisely where you left off or what was going on that can definitely be happening. Another factor is spatial recognition. And so this is one that really resonates for me. I can remember saying in high school that uh, I could often remember the exact page a factoid was located on, though not necessarily the factoid itself. I remember exclaiming more than once, I can see the page that it's on, but I cannot find, figure out what that thing is. Um, And so, yeah, and, you know, I still find that I don't necessarily, if I am putting a bookmark in a book that I'm reading and I am not at the end of a chapter, 
though I do prefer to read to the end of a chapter, <laughs> that, you know, it's fairly easy for me to remember what part of the page that I stopped reading on without really having to think about it. And so Alexander and Singer have conducted their own studies in order to further explore the question. So in a 2016 protocol, they asked 90 undergrads to read a short piece of informational prose. The text was around 450 words and was presented both in paper form and on a computer. And of course, because the piece was short under that 500 word limit, no scrolling was required, for instance. And so the students were able to remember the basic premise from both versions of the text. However, they were able to recall more details and additional key points after having read the print version. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that the students didn't notice this difference. And in fact, not only did they not notice this difference, they actually noticed, they actually felt the exact opposite. 69% felt that they had performed better after reading the passage on the computer. And so what they think is that basically, um, you know, there could be several factors for this. Um, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but I want to say that the object of the research isn't to suggest that we all go back to reading old-fashioned books. The researchers are well aware of the digital revolution and that it's not going anywhere. Instead, what they want to do is to suss out which forms are better for which tasks and where we may need to do some adjusting. And so, for instance, they point to the fact that students were able to read faster using the computer, and therefore they assumed incorrectly, that because they were able to read more quickly on this medium, they would process the information more quickly. And so one of the things they suggest is that students might slow down the pace when reading from a computer or other device to absorb more information from the text. The core question, Alexander said in an interview, is when is a reader best served by a particular medium? And what kind of readers? What age? What kind of text are we talking about? All of those elements matter a great deal. And of course, we must remember that reading via electronic means is still relatively new, and there is still much innovation that can occur to enhance the usability of screens. For instance, a book cannot easily connect the reader to other materials, such as websites, video and audio links, and other supplements that might make understanding the material in, for instance, a textbook easier. And of course, when speaking of textbooks, and I noted this uh, at the beginning as well, a very real part of the equation can be cost, and that is not a small factor. Digital textbooks can be significantly cheaper than their paper counterparts for a variety of reasons. And so this kind of research can help us get more from that medium without having to go back to books. And of course, Alexander does note that if I'm only trying to learn something that's going to be covered on a test and the test is shallow in nature, then digital is just fine. So don't despair. If you're just trying to learn something for a test, 
it should be fine. Um, you don't necessarily have to go back to carrying a uh, book bag full of heavy textbooks like uh, we did back in the day. And uh, one of the things that I would suggest um, from some other research is uh, instead of highlighting or cutting and pasting um, that taking longhand notes is actually um, a much better way for the information uh, to come through and uh, for you to get a greater level of retention. Um, it's definitely something where sort of that brain-body connection between you actually doing the physical act of writing the notes helps you retain that information much better. Because unfortunately, humans are not yet really well adapted to the digital age. It may be that these abilities will blossom the next several generations. Uh, your descendants might be much better at assimilating knowledge from a variety of digital means, and books might become less and less needed. Of course, I personally think that would be a sad thing because I am a shameless bibliophile, uh, but at least for now, old-fashioned books are still holding their own. So I definitely uh, do recommend reading all the time. Um, and obviously, I do read a lot on the computer because that's where all of the sort of new information is. But I have to admit that even though I do have a lot of ebooks, I do prefer real books still um, at this point. And um, so this research didn't really surprise me. But it's nice to have that second part where we need to be able to help people develop better ways to read using this new technology. Because again, it's easier to carry around a phone or even an iPad or a laptop than it is four or five heavy textbooks that all have a limited bit of information. And the thing about ebooks is they can also be updated. Uh, in a way that is much easier than a textbook can be updated. And of course, again, cost is a huge issue, especially for a lot of uh, lower income people. If we can get them e-readers and get them e-books that are much cheaper than having to go out and buy textbooks, you know, a little bit of investment goes a long way to helping people be able to have access to information. We just need to make sure that we also give them the tools to be able to use that information in a way that is going to be sustainable for them and is going to give them the ability to really retain the information that they need to retain. Okay, let's take a break for a moment and then we are going to come back and talk about uh, well, about abstinence only, uh, and whether or not that is something that's actually uh, useful in this day and age. So hang on for just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, 
Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Robots the size of blood cells, Earth-like planets outside the solar system, science fiction. No, science faction. Join us, Seth Chostak and Molly Bentley and Valley Free Radio, Monday mornings at 9 for Big Picture Science. Big Picture Science steps back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're headed. So think Big Picture Science. You'll find it here Monday mornings at 9 on Valley Free Radio, 103.3 FM, WXOJ. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musik Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage in Our Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. The Pacifica Radio Archive celebrates Women's History Month. The dream that 
people can govern themselves, that we don't need princes or popes or uh, high mucky-mucks, priests of any kind, telling us what to do and making decisions for us, is now over 200 years old. And it is extraordinary how plangent that idea still is after 200 years. All over the world, people are willing to die for that dream. Molly Ivins, American newspaper columnist, humorist, and liberal commentator from Texas, part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, American Women Making History and Culture, 1963 to 1982, funded in part by a grant from the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives and Records Administration. For more information, visit us at pacificaradioarchives.org. Thanks for keeping our women's history alive. And we are back. Um, I wanted to play that Molly Ivins because, um, you know, it was, I think it's the anniversary of her death recently or her birthday. I can't remember which, but um, she was such an amazing woman. And uh, we are the poorer for not having her here with us anymore. Um, If you haven't read her stuff uh, from when she was doing amazing political uh, commentary and satire. I definitely recommend it. Um, She used to call Rick Perry the hair. Um, And uh, her wit and wisdom has never been more timely as far as I'm concerned. Though I do in some ways feel that it's probably best that Uh, She did not live to see the world that we have today. Um, Yeah. Anyways, getting back to uh, other things, let's talk a little bit about abstinence-only education because, of course, it is back-to-school time and that is what is going to be out there a lot. Yeah. So a recent article uh, in the New York Times by Dr. Aaron Carroll Um, who is a great resource for this sort of stuff. Um, He is the host of a YouTube show called Healthcare Triage um, that talks, uh, does evidence-based information about the medical, um, about medicine and uh, the medical field. They are just, uh, they've been recently doing a uh, multi-part series on healthcare and guns. Uh, which I haven't gotten to yet, but which I do plan to watch. Um, And so that's just on YouTube. Um, But anyways, he did this article in the Times talking about the evidence uh, and talking about the relevant absence of evidence for uh, abstinence-only education as a method of sex ed. And so as we almost all certainly know, uh, during the Bush administration, a new zeal for banning actual sex ed took root across the country. Between 2000 and 2014, the percentage of schools that required education in human sexuality fell from 67% to 48%. And by 2014, of those who had a program, half of middle schools and more than three quarters of high schools had switched to focusing on abstinence education. Only one-fourth of middle schools and three-fifths of high schools taught about birth control. Now, compare this to 1995, 
when 81% of boys and 87% of girls reported having learned about birth control in schools. And in fact, I could have been one of those girls. Uh, I was in high school at the time, and uh, I definitely got real sex ed. Um, I'm pretty sure that I put a condom on a banana at some point. Um, And so I definitely remember uh, that when this first became popular, uh, I compared it to the wonderful job that Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign uh, had done for the uh, cessation of drug use in this country, which is to say that it actually increased drug use in this country. Um, if you ever, I think I've talked about this on the show, but not for many, many years, not for me, not for a very long time ago, um, that uh, the D.A.R.E. program actually, uh, it's been shown that the D.A.R.E. program actually increased drug use among uh, young adults. It did not decrease it. It actually introduced drugs as this cool, interesting thing to kids who may never have even actually uh, been exposed to it otherwise. So good times. <laughs> um, and so uh, this is definitely something that has uh, has serious parallels to that. Uh, the just say no to sex message uh, is increasingly ridiculous, especially when you look at the demographics of sex and marriage among young adults in this country. Currently, the median age for a first sexual encounter is just under 18 for girls and just above 18 for boys in the United States. However, the median age at which people get married has climbed to 26.5 years for women and 29.8 for men. And so the idea that you would try to persuade young people to wait until they are in their mid to late 20s to have sex is virtually impossible for a number of reasons, including basic biology. And we now have very good uh, evidence, scientific evidence, uh, studies that abstinence education has little to no positive impact on the age of first sexual encounter or the number of partners one has. And so in 2010, Congress created the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program, which would only fund evidence-based programs. And so the government chose Mathematica, a nonpartisan research organization, to determine which programs would be eligible. Only four abstinence-based programs were shown by Mathematica to have any results uh, that were positive towards reducing sexual activity. Of course, that was the only thing that they had any impact on. There is no evidence that these programs actually have any impact on other important metrics, such as number of sexual partners, the use of contraceptives, the possibility of contracting a sexually transmitted infection, or becoming pregnant. Since the government program began, the pregnancy rate among teen girls has dropped more than 40%. However, this is not because of abstinence. Most researchers believe the increased use of contraception is the primary cause for the decline, rather than adherence to abstinence-only lifestyles. Because again, the median age is still 18 um, for first sexual encounter. 
And so many, many studies have been conducted, so many that this year a group of researchers published a systematic review of systematic reviews. So a systematic review takes a bunch of different uh, uh, experiments and uh, research papers and looks at them and pulls the best the ones that have the best, uh, you know, quality controls, have the best um, randomized trials and looks at them systematically. And so there have been so many of those that they could actually do a systematic review of those reviews. Um, and so the uh, this particular one summarized 224 randomized control trials. They found that those programs which offered a robust education program on sexuality, STI prevention, and contraception improved knowledge, attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes of young adults in regards to sex. Abstinence-only programs did not. (laughs) And so there is overwhelming evidence that these don't work. Unfortunately, the current administration has canceled funding for 81 projects that are part of the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program. Uh, They will be ending the funding uh, in June of next year, which is fully two years uh, before the funding was supposed to end, and they've done this without consulting Congress. And so it seems likely now that all of the money spent on exploring evidence-based programs will now be lost and the government will once again move back towards ideologically driven education rather than evidence-based education. Now, no one has suggested that abstinence cannot be taught alongside other frankly more pertinent information, but in the current political climate, ideology will always trump evidence. So that is very unfortunate because um, it would be really great if we could continue to have evidence-based sex ed instead of just telling kids not to do it. And then uh, we have to discuss how uh, the rates of STIs in this country is exploding Um, And we also now have strains of chlamydia that can't be treated with uh, antibiotics. And yeah, it's a good time. Um, Yeah. Anyways, let's talk about something that's better, better. Yes. Uh, Our final back to school story uh, is about peanut allergies. This is a big deal, especially in grade school. There have been all sorts of, uh, you know, headlines about how you know, kids with peanut allergies are ruining childhood or that kids who like peanut butter are ruining the childhood of kids who are allergic to peanuts. Um, Now, I do not want to downplay the fact that there are people out there, there are children out there who have very, very, very real and very scary peanut allergies. It's absolutely true. Um, there are some people who can't even be in the same room where peanuts have been without having a reaction. I, in fact, remember a story from many, many years ago about someone who went into anaphylactic shock from having used a butter knife that had been used to previously cut a peanut butter sandwich, despite the fact that it had been washed. And I believe it might have even been washed in a dishwasher. So peanut allergies are very serious. There is nothing funny or ridiculous about them. And school and 
But of course, the problem is, is that in schools, peanut butter is often seen as a cheap, easy and traditional lunch food that kids actually enjoy eating. And so this can be a real issue. Studies have shown that quality of life for a child with peanut allergies is actually worse than for a child who has diabetes, says lead researcher Mimi Tang uh, from Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Australia. Um, And so they have some good news. Uh, After four years, Tang and her team have shown that immunotherapy that pairs a peanut allergen with a probiotic to help the immune system to stop going into overdrive when it encounters peanut allergens works on a very uh, significant amount of the uh, children that they tested it on. So they found that after a year, 82% of participants, 23 out of 28 children, were able to eat peanuts. And even more significantly now, four years later, of those children that the researchers were able to follow up with, 16 of the 24 children could still eat peanuts, even occasionally. Now, this is an important caveat because other therapies, such as the oral challenge protocol that I've talked about recently, That requires the continued ingestion of peanuts in order to maintain the immune system's calming effect. In no other story study of oral immunotherapy have individuals been able to ingest the allergen with this infrequency and remain non-reactive, pediatric immunologist Matthew Greenhot from the University of Colorado wrote in an accompanying comment uh, article about the study. 80% of children who achieved tolerance after the first trial were still eating peanuts four years later, and 70% of those actually passed this tolerance challenge, says Tang. So we were very excited by these findings, because to us it really shows that the probiotic-peanut combination can really change the immune response to peanuts. And so hopefully this is the start of... uh, some people actually being able to get away from having these really, really violent reactions. And uh, one of the other things that's happening is kind of on the other side of it is that the NIH um, is now recommending, it used to recommend that basically you kept babies away from peanuts and all sorts of other allergens and you only introduced them at a certain point when uh, and very like keeping an eye on them and stuff like that. And so they're actually recommending, especially for babies who have shown other allergies such as egg allergy um, and things like that, uh, that babies try starting to eat foods that contain peanuts as young as four months of age. And so they're really trying to uh, get children exposed to peanuts earlier and uh, really try and challenge their immune system and get them to be able to have exposure at a younger age so that hopefully later in life, they will not develop any kind of problems that might lead to uh, life-threatening situations. Because again, it really can lead to 
a life-threatening situation. Um, I know sometimes we kind of poo-poo this idea of kids with peanut allergies and, oh, you know, they're just uh, trying to be, uh, you know, overly protective parents and things like that. But, um, you know, I often sort of feel that way about things like this. But with this one, it's completely legitimate. Um, there are actually people who, for whom being in the same room with peanuts can be deadly. Um, so we do have to try and continue to find ways to help these people not have to deal with that. Okay, so I wanted to wrap up tonight with something else that uh, has been in the news lately um, that I didn't get a chance to cover last week. So um, it's a little bit odd to finish up in the uh, back to school special, but uh, I think it's important to talk about because it's one of those things that um, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it a little before, but um, it's come back into the news again. So, um, and that is, of course, the uh, controversy uh, over whether or not uh, talcum powder causes ovarian cancer. And so, of course, it's been back in the news because there's been yet another judgment against Johnson & Johnson, uh, where a woman sued because she claimed that the company's baby powder that contains talcum powder caused her ovarian cancer. Now, one of the things that I really want to always stress is that judging science in a courtroom is rarely a good thing. Judges and juries don't have the capacity to truly judge the scientific validity of a claim unless they have a background in science or are someone like uh, or are someone who keeps abreast of the latest science information and understands it. Um, so generally, you're not going to find that in a jury. Um, all, you know, jokes about juries aside, um, you know, I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that people shouldn't have to have a background in science to do most, um, you know, trials and judges often off obviously aren't expected to have advanced degrees in science and things like that. And so a lot of this kind of uh, evidence for and against the idea of um, a substance having an effect on the prevalence of a cancer, that can be extremely complicated because there can be a huge amount of, co of um, concurrent um possibilities. And so there could be a whole host of different things that a person is exposed to. And it's extremely hard to pinpoint which exactly one of those contributed to something, or even if anything contributed to it, because obviously, many cancers are hereditary. They are caused by our genetics. They're not caused by outside environmental factors. And, you know, there definitely are cancers that are caused by or are um, triggered by, I should say, more likely, uh, environmental factors. So obviously, you know, lung cancer for smokers, that is definitely, you know, very, there's a very definite cause and effect there that was fairly easy to suss out. Um, but for this, there really isn't a lot of evidence. Um, and so... 
I think that it's probably pretty obvious uh, that it will come as little surprise that I'm going to say that these judgments are wrong uh, and that talcum powder does not cause ovarian cancer. Uh, this is a case of both the old adage that correlation does not equal causation and also the importance of quality experimental studies. Now, there may be some women who used talcum before the 1970s when the powder may have contained asbestos that might have had some problem, um, but we're almost 50 years uh, away from that point. So uh, if you want to be extra safe, uh, but you still want to use a powder as a drying agent in the vicinity of your genitalia, uh, you can always use a cornstarch-based powder. So you know, there's just an option there uh, um, in case you are still concerned. But there is little strong evidence that the talcum powder actually causes ovarian cancer when you look at the quality of the studies that show various effects. And so basically what happened is that some scientists argue that the talc, which can be an inflammatory agent, is able to reach the upper part of a woman's reproductive tract and inflame the area which can lead to cancer. And so um, they've pointed at several studies that suggest a dose-response effect in premenopausal women, especially women who don't smoke and are heavy, as well as postmenopausal women who use hormone therapy. Now, dose-response means the more a patient uses a substance, the more likely they are to develop a cancer or develop whatever um, disease. And so looking at several epidemiological studies, Dr. Daniel Kramer, a professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School and director of the OBGYN Epidemiology Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital suggests that there could be a 30% increased risk for ovarian cancer in women who use talcum powder on their genital region. However, his research was published in the early 80s. And of course, that's closer to when women might have been using talc that contained asbestos. And many of the studies he looked at were case control studies. Case controlled studies are kind of the worst. <laughs> um, they're not really, but um, a lot of times you can have really false positives. Um, and so uh, one of the famous case controlled studies recently was the one that supposedly said that uh, brain cancer uh, could be caused by using a cell phone. And so, of course, uh, everyone pointed out that if someone has brain cancer and you ask them how much did you use your cell phone, they're probably going to think oh, too much um, when, of course, they didn't. And um, so this is pretty much the same, is that they basically asked women to remind them or to tell them, you know, retrospectively, how much did they use it? And so uh, two newer prospective studies have failed to find any difference in prevalence of ovarian cancer between those who used talcum powder on their genitals and those who did not. So, so Sarah Temkin, an associate professor of gynecology, Gynecological Oncology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine believes that the evidence is not strong enough to suggest any action, uh, such as a label on the powder. She told Live Science that ovarian cancer is a rare disease and the two established risk factors are a family history of ovarian cancer and a family history of breast cancer. 
women who have used oral birth control pills for at least five years may reduce the risk of about 50% compared to those who have never used the pill. But Temkin insists that there are other risk factors for ovarian cancer that are better to focus on than talc. And uh, you can probably hear me speeding up because I am out of time for tonight. Uh, so I will be back next week with more sciencey things. And um, please do stay tuned for Evidence Based Radio coming up next. <laughs>